0: And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March 27th, 86th day of the year. 279 days remain to the year's over with. And it's in El Paso. It is cold. Now, for uh, holidays and national days and all that, it's National Spanish Paella Day. Celebrate Exchange Day. Well, that's where we allegedly honor dedicated souls for their service. Like John Kerry, who's fighting climate change in his private jet, he flies the world, fighting climate change. <clears throat> International Scribble Day. International Whiskey Day. Myanmar Armed Forces Day. National Acoustic Assault Day. National Joe Day. If your name is Joe, this is your day. National Medical Science Liaison Awareness Appreciation Day. <coughs> um. Quirky Country Music Song Titles Day, Seward's Day, Seward's Folly was the purchase of Alaska, it's Viagra Day, World Theater Day, and of course, Women's History Month. Well, before we get to uh, today's show, I want to make mention of a um an event, uh, an event that uh, happened in Waco, Texas. It lasted from February 28th to April 19th, 1993. 51 days. Uh, it's about, it actually happened at Mount Carmel Center in Elk, Texas, about 13 miles from Waco. That's when the Federal Bureau of Investigation attempted to serve a search and arrest warrant. I actually knew ATF that tried to serve the warrant. Uh, the FBI came in and conducted the siege that lasted 51 days. The fire destroyed the compound. 86 people died. It's known as the Waco Siege. It was a law enforcement siege of the compound that belonged to the religious cult, Branch Davidians, carried out by the federal government and the Texas state law enforcement. The Branch Davidians were led by a man named David Koresh and were headquartered at Mount Carmel Center Ranch in the community of Axtel, Texas. They were suspected, mind you, not proven. Suspected of stockpiling illegal weapons, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Farms got a search warrant for the compound, arrest warrants for Koresh as well as a few other of the leaders. Well, they were going to do a daylight raid of the ranch to serve this uh, search and arrest warrant. Element of surprise was supposed to allow for the quick control of the situation, reduce the risk to all parties that uh, would be associated with the group members using this large cache of modified weapons and explosive devices. The ATF were positive they had, of course, any. Advantage of surprise was lost when a KWTX-TV reporter who'd been tipped off about the raid asked the Postal Service for directions, or the Postal Service mail carrier, who was Koresh's brother-in-law. So the group's members were fully armed and prepared, and a gunfight erupted. Four ATF agents and six Branch Davidians died in the initial gunfight. Upon the ATFs entering the property and failing to execute the search warrant, a siege lasting 51 days was begun by the FBI. Eventually, on April 19th, the FBI launched a tear gas attack in an attempt to force the Branch Davidians out of the ranch. Shortly after the tear uh, tear gas attack was initiated, the uh, Mount Carmel Center erupted in flames. Fires resulted in the death of 76 Branch Davidians, including 26 children, two pregnant women, and David Koresh himself. So this 51-day siege by the most elite law enforcement agency, many say in the world, resulted in the death of four federal agents and 82 Branch Davidians. Now, the events of the siege and the origin of the fire are disputed by the cultists, but evidence shows the cultists started three fires that partially led to their death. Now, I have a question about the validity of the evidence. The Department of Justice reports from October 1993 and July 2000 conclude also the, that although incendiary tear gas canisters, that means that when they pop, They start fires, but they were used by the FBI. The Branch Davidian started the fire, complete with evidence from listening to devices, recording uh, very specific discussions between Koresh and others about pouring more fuel on piles of hay as the fire started. Aerial footage that showed at least three simultaneous uh, ignition points at different locations in the structure. Now, the FBI swears none of their agents fired any live rounds on the day of the fire. And once again, the cultists contend that live rounds were fired by law enforcement and suggest that a combination of gunshots and flammable tear gas were the cause of the fire. You know, though, evidence shows that many of the cultists actually killed themselves and murdered some of their children before setting the compound on fire. um, The FBI, of course, should all be... uh, made saints, because they they did absolutely nothing wrong in the death of all these people. Of course, a reporter talking to the one mail carrier who was the brother-in-law of David Koresh could not have been anticipated, but then again, clearly the news media was notified, Uh, and that raises a lot of uh, fascinating questions. Well, I just wanted to make mention of that because uh, if you watch watch all the the um T V shows about FBI. They don't mention the Waco siege. Well in eleven ninety nine, King Richard the of England is wounded by a crossbow bolt while fighting in France. That's the wrong dum dum dum. Here we go. 1309, Pope Clement V imposes excommunication and interdiction on Venice and a general prohibition on all commercial intercourse with Venice, which uh, had seized on Ferrara a uh, papal fiefdom. See, in those days, the Pope ruled as a monarch. He had armies at his disposal because God told him he was entitled. 1329, Pope John... Twenty-second issues his uh, *In Agro Dominica*, condemning some writings of Meister Eckhart as rhetorical her- 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 Fifteen thirteen, Spanish Florida Juan Ponce de León reaches the northern end of the Bahamas on his first voyage to Florida. See, he was sure he was going to find the Fountain of Youth, which is supposed to be in Florida. 1625, Charles I becomes King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, as well as claiming the title of King of France. 1638, the first of four destructive Calabrian earthquakes strikes southern Italy. Measuring 6.8 in the and a sound Mercalli intensity of 11, it kills between 10,000 and 30,000 people. 1782, the Second Rockingham Ministry assumes office in Great Britain and begins negotiations to end the American War of Independence. 1794, the U.S. government establishes a permanent navy and authorizes the building of six frigates. 1809, Peninsula War. Gabrón Franco, Polish force, defeats the Spanish in the Battle of Ciudad Real. 1814, War of 1812, in central Alabama, U.S. forces of General Jackson defeat the Creek at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. A lot of the Native American tribes sided with the British in the War of 1812. 1836, Texas Revolution, Orders General uh, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the Mexican Army massacres 342 Texan Army POWs at Goliad, Texas, among which was one of my ancestors. We're still kind of PO'd about that. 1866, President of the United States of America, Andrew Johnson, votes the vetoes the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Uh, uh, His veto was overridden by Congress, and the bill passes into law on April 9th. 1871, the first international rugby football match when Scotland defeats England and Edinburgh at the Rayburn uh, Place. 1884, a mob in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, attacks members of a jury that had returned a verdict of manslaughter in what was seen as a clear case of murder. Over the next few days, the mob would riot and eventually destroy the courthouse. Now, if it was being described by CNN... It would be a peaceful demonstration. They don't know how the courthouse was destroyed. 1886, Geronimo, Apache warrior, surrenders to the U.S. Army, ending the main phase of the Apache Wars. Uh, the Army eventually beat uh, Geronimo by uh, just sealing off all the water holes. Eventually, the, even the Apaches had to throw in a towel. 1899, Emilio Aguinaldo leads the Filipino forces in the, for the only time during the Philippine-American War at the Battle of Marileo River. 1991, uh, Emilio Aguinaldo, leader of the first Philippine, uh, the first, one more time, leader of the first Philippine Republic, is captured by American forces on this day in 1901. 1912, First Lady Helen Taft and the Viscountess uh, Chinde, wife of the Japanese ambassador, plant two Yoshino cherry trees on the northern bank of the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. That's the origin of the National Cherry Blossom Festival. 1915, Typhoid Mary, the first uh, healthy carrier of disease ever identified in the U.S., is put in quarantine for the second time where she'd remain for the rest of her life. The disease didn't affect her. She just carried it and gave it to others. 1918, National Congress of National Council of Bessarabia proclaims union with the Kingdom of Romania. 1938, Second Sino Japanese War, Battle of Tezorhong begins, resulting several weeks later in the war's first major Chinese victory over Japan. 1941, World War II, Yugoslav Air Force officers toppled the pro Axis government in a bloodless coup. 1942, the Holocaust. Nazi Germany and Vichy France begin the deportation of 65,000 Jews from the uh, internment camp to uh, German extermination camps. 1943, World War II, Battle of the Komandorsky Islands. In the Aleutian Islands, the battle begins when U.S. Navy forces intercept Japanese attempting to reinforce the garrison at Kiska. 1945, World War II, Operation Starvation. The aerial mining of Japan's ports and waterways begins. Argentina declares war on the Axis powers. Better late than never. Um, 1958, Nikita Khrushchev becomes chairman of the Council of Ministers of the Soviet Union. 1964, Good Friday earthquake. most powerful earthquake recorded in North American history. A magnitude of 9.2 strikes south-central Alaska, killing 125 and inflicting massive damage on the city of Anchorage. 1975, construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System begins. 1976, the first section of the Washington Metro opens to the public. 1977, Tenerife Airport disaster. Two Boeing 747 airliners collide on a foggy runway in Tenerife and the Canary Islands. Kills five hundred eighty-three. All two hundred forty-eight on the the KLM and three hundred thirty-five on the Pan Am plane. Sixty-one survived on the Pan Am flight, deadliest aviation accident in history. Nineteen eighty, Norwegian uh, oil platform Alexander L Cleveland collapses in the North Sea, kills one hundred twenty-three of the crew of two hundred twelve. 1981, the Solidarity Movement in Poland stages a warning strike, and at least uh, 12 million Poles walk off their jobs for four hours. 1986, a car bomb explodes outside Russell Street Police Headquarters in Melbourne, Australia, kills one police officer and injures 21 people. 1990, U.S. begins broadcasting anti-Castro propaganda to Cuba on TV Marty. 1993, Jiang Zemin is appointed president of the People's Republic of China. When it says peoples, you know you're dealing with a communist government. 1993, Italian former minister and Christian democracy leader, Guido Andriotti is accused of, of mafia allegiance by the Tribunal of Palermo. 1998, Food and Drug Administration approves Viagra for use as a treatment for erectile dysfunction. First pill to be approved for this condition in the U.S. 1999, Kosovo War. American Lockheed F-117A Nighthawk is shot down by Yugoslav Army Sam, the only uh, the first and only Nighthawk to be lost in combat. 2000, a Phillips Petroleum Plant explosion in Pasadena, Texas, kills one and injures 71 others. 2002, Passover Massacre. Palestinian suicide bomber kills 29 at a Passover seder in Netanya, Italy, 2002. Also, Nanterra an massacre: in Nanterre, France, a gunman opens fire at the end of a town council meeting, resulting in the death of eight councilors and 19 other people that are injured. 2004: HMS Celia, decommissioned, the Leander class frigate is sunk as an artificial reef off Cornwall, first of its kind in Europe. 2009, the dam forming Situ Gintung, an artificial lake in Indonesia, fails, killing at least 99 people in the ensuing flood. 2014, Philippines signs a peace accord with the largest Muslim rebel group, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, ending uh, decades of conflict. 2015, Al-Shabaab militants attack and temporarily occupy a Mogadishu hotel, leaving at least 20 people dead. 2016, suicide blast in gulshan e Park in Lahore claims at least 70 and leaves over 300 injured, targeted a bombing, or Christians celebrating Easter. In 2020, North Macedonia becomes the 30th member in NATO. Well, that's the end of our little history segment. We're going to talk about a few more ridiculous crimes. You know, interestingly enough, while there are some truly brilliant criminals, there are some others that are certainly not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know, it's always been said, no body, no crime. uh, There was a French teen known by his YouTube handle as, you know, Dura Metallic who achieved internet fame with a $1,200 robotic arm built for one purpose, to steal $1 cans of Coke. This hooked appendage with a mechanical pincher operated by a video game controller can penetrate even the most unwilling vending machines and raid what's in it. Nothing less than the best French invention since the guillotine. But there's no such thing as a Perfect crime. The arm's first public theft was a a Coke Zero. Which, let me assure you, doesn't hold a candle to, to actual Coke. Now, remote control isn't new. But virtual reality robot uh, avatars are. According to BBC, robots controlled remotely over the Internet are becoming increasingly common and that's raising troubling criminal concerns. Burglars in Botswana could send a bank robbing robot to uh, Boise with uh, virtually no risk to themselves. Now, why anybody want to go to Boise anybody's guess, but they could. Now, narco-trafficking has been on the rise for decades, so it's no surprise drug lords are increasingly investing in robotic technology. 2007, three Colombian men were convicted of using an unmanned robotic submarine to transport millions of dollars of cocaine across international waters. Academic journal IEEE warns of gun packing, drug selling robots roaming our streets someday. But if cocaine vending machines ever do come to pass, police can just use the French YouTuber's robot arm to steal the stuff back and keep the streets safe. Now you gotta wonder about somebody who spends $1,200 to build something to steal $1 cans of Coke. Now that was at the time the the robot arm was built. Now, of course, even a can of Coke is almost $2, so you'd still have to uh, steal. What, um, over 600 of them in order to show a profit? You know, some of the goofiest people I've ever met are lawyers. And one of the first things my father said to me when I graduated from law school was, lawyers should be seen and not had. Well, some of the quotes lawyers are known for should give you an idea. F.G. Bailey said, I get paid for seeing that my clients have every break the law allows. I've knowingly defended a number of guilty men, but the guilty never escaped unscathed. My fees are sufficient punishment for anybody. And certainly that is quite true. Uh, Evil Younger said, An incompetent lawyer can delay a trial for months or years. A competent lawyer can delay one even longer. William Baxter said, I never met a litigator didn't think he was winning right up until the moment the guillotine dropped. John J. Osborne Jr. said, We lawyers shake papers at each other the way primitive tribes shook their spears. And Roy Cohn said, I don't know. I don't want to know what the law is. I want to know who the judge is. Because quite often, the law didn't make any difference. I'm doing a, a case that's been going on for nine years. They've thrown 14 attorneys at me. And no matter what the evidence is, it was reported to me that a federal judge said, I'm not going to rule against my friends. Not on behalf of a pro se. Now, pro se, somebody represents himself. If you want to spend the money to go get a high-priced attorney, the judges smile. But if you take money, as one judge said, took money out of his friend's pockets by not hiring a local attorney, oh, they, they were very upset. Now, the attorney we had took a bribe to walk away. He was promised a judgeship if he dropped the case. That tells you what goes on in El Paso. See, here, veterans, especially disabled veterans, have access access to federal grants that are uh, aimed at dealing with certain issues disabled veterans have to deal with. And as one contractor said to me, you're a walking ATM as far as we're concerned, and we know if we keep the pressure on, you're going to start spewing that free VA money. So they got an insurance company to fund a nine-year attack They've paid the fees to fourteen different attorneys in that nine years. I mean, they have their expenditures have to be up into six figures to try to get a ten thousand dollar return for their clients. And even though the evidence shows the clients and the attorneys lied, knew they lied, that's okay with the judge because they're fine upstanding people. You know some criminals actually go someplace to commit their crimes and get caught but there are those that thought they had a better idea they thought they just phoned it in in August of 1996 a uh, 19-year-old Dontario Beasley was stranded in Little Lark Arkansas and called police to request a white ride downtown when informed it was against police policy to give rides (coughs) <coughs> That's what taxis are for. He hung up, waited a few minutes, and called back and He reported a suspicious looking person loitering near a phone booth and then he gave a description of himself. We well, thought they'd get him a free ride downtown to the station where he'd be questioned or released instead, he got a free ride downtown was charged with calling in a false alarm thirty nine year old Ronnie Wade uh, Cater of Hampton, Virginia, was arrested in 1997 after phoning in a bomb threat. He was at a bar, drunk, wanted to, to drive home without being nabbed for DUI. So he phoned in his bomb threat, saying there was a bomb at another local pub, hoping to divert police attention. So they'd be over there, not looking at anybody leaving the pub he was at. Well, the police traced the call, and he got arrested. You know, some, as I said earlier, uh, criminals are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. Let's talk about Blackjack Tom Ketchum. He was ordinary cowboy before turning to crime, but came back from a drive one day and learned that his girlfriend had eloped with another man. Now, this rejection apparently pushed him over the edge. he ran with members of Wyoming's notorious Hole in the Wall gang. But bought so many stick-ups that getting away with a few dollars was the best he actually managed. And he had a strange reaction to his continual failure. It was explained by J. Robert Nash in American Eccentrics. Whenever a caper of his went wrong, he'd methodically beat himself on the head with the butt of his six-shooter. 18, in 1898, Ketchum and his companions robbed a train in New Mexico for about 500 bucks. That wasn't exactly a tremendous fortune, but it was enough to keep Ketchum coming back for more. He went after the same train at the same spot a total of four times. On the fourth time, lawmen were waiting for him. There was a shootout, and Ketchum was wounded and captured. So... Even though that sounds incredibly dumb, he was actually the second stupidest outlaw at history reports. His brother, Sam, was even dumber. While Blackjack was in prison, Sam masterminded another identical robbery of the same train at the same spot. He got himself killed in that attempt. Well... In 2006, Detroit Lions defensive line coach Joe Cullen was ordering food at a Detroit area Wednesday's, Wendy's drive thru. Police later pulled him over after getting a call from Wendy's. See, Cullen was actually nude. A later, he was pulled out again, or pulled over again by Detroit police. This time, he was wearing clothes, but he was drunker than Cootie Brown. For the naked incident, he paid a $500 fine. For the drunk driving, he paid a $300 fine. And for both, he paid a $20,000 misconduct fine to the NFL. Conduct on becoming a football player. I didn't know there was such a charge, but apparently there is. Well, Plexico Barissa wide receiver for the New York Giants. He caught the game-winning pass in the 2008 Super Bowl. Later that same year, he went to a New York City nightclub called LQ. And he brought along a large Glock handgun, which he hid by tucking into the waistband of his jeans rather than using a holster like normal people. At one point, the gun started to slip down his leg. When he reached for it, he accidentally pulled the trigger and shot himself in the right thigh. Well, he sought medical attention and then turned himself into the NYPD. Not only had he injured himself, but he'd actually committed a crime. The gun was not registered or licensed. He had a license to carry a concealed handgun, but only in Florida, and it had expired. Bled guilty to the weapons charge and sentenced to two years in prison. So if you're dumb enough to carry an unlicensed pistol, and you're dumb enough to shoot yourself with it, don't be dumb enough to turn yourself in. Well, let's talk about the Genovese syndrome, the phenomenon of a crime being witnessed by numerous people who don't try to stop it or call for help. Well, Kitty Genovese got home from work very late. In Queens, New York, March 13, 1964, This 28-year-old, 105-pound Genovese parked her car at 3 a.m. And there was somebody waiting for her. As she began to walk toward her house, the man grabbed her and stabbed her. She screamed in terror, Oh, my God, he's stabbing me. Please help. Well, all her neighbors in in this apartment complex, many of whom knew her, turned on their lights and opened their apartment windows, and one male neighbor shouted down, Leave that girl alone. At that point, the attacker left, and she began staggering to her apartment, bleeding from a number of stab wounds while her neighbors shut their windows and turned off their lights. Nobody came out to help. She no doubt thought the worst was over, but her attacker came back and stabbed her again. She screamed, I'm dying, and neighbors threw open their windows again and cut on their lights, but nobody came out to help her. And once again, the attacker ran off. Well, she crawled into the vestibule of an apartment house and lay there bleeding for a number of minutes once again her assailant came back for a third time assaulted her took the 49 dollars from her wallet before stabbing her one last fatal time Wasn't until 3 in the morning a full 50 minutes after the attack began and a neighbor called the police and that was because she was cluttering up the vestibule of the apartment two minutes later police arrived to find kitty's body well the police questioned. Her neighbors and discovered that at least thirty-eight people had witnessed the killer attacking Genovese, but nobody tried to intervene. Only one had called the police after Kitty was already dead. The neighbors offered numerous excuses for their behavior. They all said pretty much they didn't want to get involved. They could see others were witnessing the crime, and surely those people were calling the police, and there were no there's no law forcing witnesses to call for help. Now the murder was caught less than a week later. He readily admitted to killing Kitty Genovese, as well as two other local women. In June of 1964, 29-year-old Winston Mosley was found guilty. But Kitty Genovese has not been forgotten. The case has lived on in plays and TV dramas. It even spawned a whole new branch of psychology. When experts refer to the Genovese syndrome, they're theorizing the neighbor's failure to act was due to. Diffusion of responsibility. So many people watching the crime that no one person felt they had any personal responsibility. They believed somebody else would do something. That case is still taught in every psych one-on-one class in the country. And basically, what it comes down to is, I don't want to get involved. Well, Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Elected in 2014, has been widely mocked for not being able to take mockery. Several people, including journalists, have been fined and jailed and even beaten for insulting the president, which in that country is actually a crime. If there was a crime in this country, half the population would be in jail. Bilgin Sifsi. A doctor in Turkey's public health service discovered that the hard way after he posted a Facebook meme comparing President Adrogan to Gollum, the skulking creature from Lord of the Rings films. Or did he? When Adrogan saw the meme, three side-by-side pictures of himself and Gollum with similar facial expressions, he had the doctor fired from his job and put on trial for publicly denigrating a state official. He found guilty the doctor would be facing two years in prison. Well, when the case made in international headlines, it caught the attention of Ring's writer-director Peter Jackson in a statement, along with two other screenwriters. Jackson came out to the defendant's defense by pointing out that the character has a split personality, one of which is the evil, conniving, malicious Gollum, and the other is the sweet, joyful Smeagol. If the images are, in fact, the ones forming the basis of the Turkish lawsuit, we can state categorically none of them featured a the character known as Gollum, who should never be confused with Smeagol. The doctor was acquitted. A drogan went into just a temper tantrum. Well, let's talk about the Somerdale scandal. It involved eight Chicago police officers. In July 1959, 23-year-old Richie Morrison was arrested while burglarizing a Chicago business. He wasn't too worried about it at first, but when the help he seemed to expect didn't arrive, he started talking. And what a story he told. He became known as the babbling burglar. In fact, that name spread across the country, and he told investigators that over the previous 15 months, he'd carried out a string of burglaries with the help of eight Chicago police officers. They all worked the night shift at the city's 40th or Summerdale Police District. They'd uh, help plan the robberies, according to Morrison, and, and used their squad cars to take away the loot. Eight officers were arrested and all of them were eventually convicted on various felony charges. Two paid fines and the other six served time in prison. Unlike some other police scandals, Somerdale actually resulted in significant changes in the department. Most importantly, the establishment of the Chicago Police Board, a five-member civilian panel that uh, oversees many aspects of police administration, including the handling of cases of misconduct. The board still exists today. You know, I've you know, with the advent of the ring cameras, you would think a lot more crimes would be solved. Well, that is not exactly the case in El Paso. Someone broke into my wife's car sitting in our driveway. The whole thing was caught on the ring camera. He even stood in the light from the uh, attached floodlight. After he broke into the car to look at the garage door opener, he expected to give him free access to the house. Well, when the police were called, eight hours later they showed up, and they had no idea how they were going to find this man. I mean, the camera even caught the tag number of his car. But the Keystone cops in El Paso couldn't find him. No idea how they were going to find him. I said, how about checking the license number? Well, you know, that might be an invasion of his privacy. The man's a crook. It's on camera. What more do you need, a written confession? Well, you know, another interesting aspect is just because you lead a life of crime doesn't mean you can't be well-mannered. January 2004, a man went into the Wells Fargo branch in Phoenix, Arizona, waited his turn, walked up to the counter and told the teller, this is a robbery. I need $1,500 and 50s, please. Made no threats, didn't show any weapons. Teller gave him what he what she had and he smiled walked out the door. According to one police officer, it was like Emily Post does a bank robbery. And certainly, uh, it's been my experience, especially here in El Paso, they can't do enough for the crooks. Nazareno Rodriguez and Sebastian G- Gale- Gallardo, two prisoners in Argentina, had been accused of robbery, able to unscrew their jail cell door and make a middle-of-the-night escape. Police were uh, surprised when they later found a note in the empty cell. The note said, we love our freedom and can't live locked in. We're sorry for any inconvenience, might have caused you. One police officer said, they were so cheeky, we couldn't believe they left a note. But we'll find them. Uh-huh. Thieves stole more than $207,000 from a London ATM machine. And seven days later returned 187000 of it. Barkley's bank employees found it in a garbage bag just inside their door. Bank spokesperson told the the Sun, We do offer cash back facilities, but we didn't expect anything quite like this. You know, it kind of goes along with what Will Rogers once said. Make crime pay. Become a lawyer. That's some of the biggest crooks I know are lawyers. You know, one of the most intriguing environmental legal battles took place from 1997 and 1998, between uh, the Spring Pond Beavers and barney Michigan, and the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. The Beavers, doing what beavers do, dared to construct a dam on uh, Marnie resident Stephen uh, Veldin's uh, property. Trouble began when Ryan DeVries, one of the Veldin's neighbors, complained to the Michigan. Uh, Department of Environmental Quality about flooding on his property caused by a dam located on Nuz Veldin's property, the EEQ responded to DeVries instead of um, Veldin accused DeVries of participating in unauthorized activity, specifically the construction of two illegal wood debris dams across an outlet stream of Spring Pond. And such illegal activities carried a $10,000 fine per day. DEQ ordered the EQ order device to cease and desist construction on the dams, remove all the wood and brush in time for a site inspection by DEQ agents. And if you wonder about a uh, Department of Environmental Quality having uh, agents, El Paso has trash police. Oh, I offended them terribly when there was a piece of styrofoam in my recycle bin. Now, they talk about recycle, but let me tell you, I've been out at the, the dump and watched the recycle trucks back up and dump it in the dump and then happily go on their way. Well, DeVries forwarded that letter from the DEQ to Zvelden because it was Zvelden. Dam, not his. When Vedden received the DEQ letter from DeVries, he responded to the DEQ on Spring Pond Beaver's behalf. He asked all the right questions. Was the DEQ discriminating against the Spring Road Beavers were all beavers required to file a permit before beginning dam construction? And to prove there'd been no discrimination, Veldin asked for copies of dam permits filed by other beavers. He informed the DEQ if they were serious about dam removal, they'd better tell the proper parties, the beavers. Mr. Velden was especially concerned that the state preserved the beavers' civil rights. Was the state going to arrest the beavers? Would the beavers be read their rights? Would the state provide legal representation? He finally ended his missive by saying, In my humble opinion, the Spring Pond beavers have a right to build their own authorized dams as long as the sky is blue, the grass is green, and water flows downstream. The Michigan DEQ inspected the site and dropped the investigation after the dam was removed and the beavers moved on. It's rumored the beavers have returned to Spring Pond, the original scene of the crime for an encore performance, You know, I I would suspect it would be quite an interesting trial for the DEQ to bring charges against the Beavers. It would be a hell of a TV show. You can call it Leave It to the Beavers. Let's talk about the story behind one of the West's most infamous outlaws. (coughs) Billy the Kid. I wrote a book about him. Christened Frank Henry McCarty in New York City. I'm sorry, Patrick Henry McCarty. Was practically a kid, just 21, when he allegedly died. Now, it turns out he actually didn't die. He, um, a friend of his was killed by uh, Pat Garrett. And uh, Garrett helped Billy, his main squeeze, and his illegitimate son, known as Patricino, Leave, and uh, Billy died in the thirties in uh, Silver City, New Mexico. It said he was a nice boy and a good dancer, but he fell under the influence of a young man known as Sombrero Jack, and that led to Billy's first crime, at the age of sixteen, stole clothes from a Chinese laundry in Silver City, New Mexico. Well, for the next two years, he worked as a cow hand until the day he, he shot his first victim, a blacksmith, who called him a pimp. And there was no turning back from that. Going by Billy the Kid, William H. Bond, and a few other alien, alien aliasness, <laughs> He spent the rest of his life stealing horses, rustling cattle, robbing stagecoaches, and killing the occasional lawman here and there. 1880, acting on the tip, Pat Garrett found Billy and arrested him and some of his gang kid was convicted of the murder of Sheriff William Brady, which had happened three years before. He was scheduled to be hung, but escaped, killing two deputies in the process. Well, Garrett tracked Billy down a few months later before the kid had a chance to go for his gun shot him through the heart in a dark bedroom. Two states, New Mexico and Texas, claimed to be the final resting place of Billy the kid. But in actuality, it was a member of Billy's gang who looked a good bit like him that Pat Garrett shot and uh, Billy and the friend had been in the dark bedroom. Pat Garrett was there waiting on him. He hit Billy in the head with his pistol, shot the friend, pushed the friend, uh, Billy's body under the bed and everybody identified the dead man as Billy. Uh, Pat, uh, when he went Took a number of deputies with him, but he made sure every deputy did not know what Billy looked like. Now it's quite an interesting story. The book I wrote is called *The Border Escapades of Billy the Kid*. You can get it on Amazon. Well, let's talk about public enemy number one. Al Capone. Capone's parents immigrated from Naples to Brooklyn when gangster to be was born in. Uh, where the gangster to be was born in eighteen ninety nine. He was a B student until they quit school in the sixth grade. Grew up in a rough neighborhood and joined two kids' gangs, the Brooklyn Rippers and the Forty Thieves. Worked various low-paying jobs, but found he made better money working for gangsters. Went to work for Frankie Vale, who was a gangster at the Brooklyn Inn, where he insulted a patron. Her companion attacked Capone with a, a knife, which is how Capone got the wound that gave him the nickname Scarface. By 1918, he had killed two men and fled to Chicago, where he started working for mobster Johnny Torrio. One of Capone's first jobs was to kill Torrio's boss. and He was careful to arrange an alibi for the murder a precaution he kept during his career. Quickly became Torrio's second-in-command, and Torrio was the new boss, or assigned Capone to manage bootlegging, prostitution, and gambling operations in Chicago and the suburbs. 1925, a rival tried to assassinate Toyo, who uh, fled Chicago, leaving the business to Capone. And let me tell you, Capone lived large and made headlines like a movie star. He controlled Chicago's politicians and police and uh, launched ruthless wars on rival bootleggers. February 14, 1929, Capone's men and their machine guns mowed down several rival gangsters in what became known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Massacre brought Capone national attention as public enemy number one, but the authorities had trouble pinning the crime on the man who always had an alibi and who, frankly, owned the Chicago police force. Finally, an IRS investigator accidentally found incriminating receipts that landed Capone in an Atlanta federal prison for tax evasion did not get him for violating the law, but for not paying his taxes. Capone landed his organization for prison until 1934 when he was transferred to Alcatraz to to try to cut him off from his gang and the outside world. But in 1938, he was serving his sentence in the prison hospital, suffering from dementia brought on by syphilis. After he was released in 1939, he retired to his estate in Palm Island, Florida, and died of natural causes in 1947. Well, let's talk about... A bedtime story that uh, sure to keep you up at night. Between 1979 and 1983, five young men between the ages of 14 and 25 were kidnapped, drugged, tortured, and murdered in or around the South Australian city of Adelaide. 1984, Bevan Spencer von Einem, an Adelaide accountant, was convicted of committing one of the murders and is currently serving a life sentence. Although he, police believe Von Enum took part in all the murders, they lack proof to prove it. And anonymous witnesses, anonymous because they'd been threatened, informed police that while Von Enum was guilty, he wasn't alone. He was one member of a shadowy group of prominent Adelaide citizens, including lawyers and doctors, who used their bountiful resources to prey on young men. I know of another uh, group of attorneys and judges, who do the same thing in the state of Georgia. Now, Other members of this group, called the family in the press, are believed to have taken part in all five murders and possibly others along with Von Enum. But revealed who his accomplices were, though he hinted at a group being responsible and he was unable to provide further information out of fear. A million dollar reward still stands for information leading to further convictions. Cold cases reopened in October 2008, but despite reports of new evidence, no further arrests have been made and the case remains open. And the million dollar reward is still pending. Well, sometimes criminal plots can backfire. Sometimes, literally. Herbert Ridge built a gas siphoning contraption with an electric pump. One afternoon in October 2012, he was stealing gas from a parked car in East Mesa, Arizona when the the pump sparked and ignited the gasoline, and that caught Ridge's T-shirt on fire. He started rolling around on the street, much to the amusement of kids walking home from school. Then he jumped in his pickup truck and took off. Only problem is, he was still on fire, and so was his truck. So Ridge jumped out of their truck and ran away, and his flaming pickup kept going until it smashed into a house and set the building on fire. Neighbors put out the fire and apprehended Ridge, who was taken to the hospital and into jail. Sometimes things just don't work out as you anticipate. 2001, two men broke into the home of 71-year-old Fay Olson in the Australian island of Tasmania, tied her to a chair and poked her with sticks, and robbed her of $550. That was 504 U.S. dollars, the equivalent of. Police found no evidence at the scene except for a leech fully engorged with blood from a recent meal lying on the floor. Officers checked the woman and themselves for signs the leech had been attached to one of them and determined it must have fallen off one of the robbers. Well, DNA samples were taken from the blood in the leech. Seven years later, In 2008, a 56-year-old Tasmanian man was arrested on drug charges and a routine DNA DNA sample was taken from him and cross-checked against the database. It matched the DNA taken from the leech. Peter Alec Cannon eventually confessed to the seven-year-old crime and was sentenced to two years in prison. His accomplices were never apprehended. Tasmanian police said it was, to their knowledge, the first time DNA from a leech had assisted in solving a crime anywhere in the world. Well, let's talk about forensic science. An 1800s edition, that is. And no, forensics is irrelevant to new official science. It's been centuries in the making. In, 19, uh, excuse me, in 1813, Matthew Orfila publishes the first treatise that uh, systematically catalogues poisons and their effects. And for this he gets the title of the father father of modern techno- toxicology. Although there probably wasn't an official ceremony, and uh, certainly no certificates or medals are handed out, Orfila was also one of the first to develop forensic blood tests and to examine blood and semen with a microscope for forensic purposes. In eighteen thirty-five, Scotland Yard investigator Henry Goddard determines that a bullet had uh, a butler had staged an attempted robbery when he traces a bullet back to a bullet mold owned by the butler. This is the first example of bullet matching, as well as one of the first actual recorded cases of the butler did it. Eighteen sixty-three. The question in this particular case was: Is that blood or a spot of ketchup? German scientist named Schoenbein creates the first presumptive test for blood when he discovers that hemoglobin will oxidize hydrogen peroxide. Mixing peroxide and ketchup will simply give you an incredible ketchup. Although it's unclear if Schoenbein made this particular observation. In eighteen eighty, there was trouble in Tokyo. There had been a burglary and an innocent man had been blamed for the for the heist. In step, Scottish physician and missionary Henry Uh, Falls, who uses fingerprints not only to clear the accused, but also to bring the actual criminal to justice. And he wrote about using fingerprints for crime solving in the science journal Nature, and spends the next couple of decades in a nasty little letter-writing spat with uh, Sir William Herschel, about which of the two of them thought up the idea first. Now Herschel, who shouldn't be confused with the other Sir William Herschel, the guy who discovered Uranus, uh, concedes the point finally in 1917, and then in 1892, Sir Francis Galton of Great Britain publishes Fingerprints, the first book to codify fingerprint patterns, and she ought to use them in solving crimes. Meanwhile, in Argentina, police investigator Juan uh, Vostick develops a fingerprinting classification system based on Galton's work and uses it to, uh, uses it to uh, accuse a mother of murdering her two sons and then slitting her own throat to make it look like the work of somebody else. Seems she left bloody fingerprints on her door's post. Well, I've got a teacher to, to do it better next time. And finally, we've got the murderous eyes of Logtown. Now, today, Logtown is an overgrown ghost town near Jacksonville, Oregon. Back in 1861, it was a thriving mining town. But then, tragedy stuck. Mary Hinkle and her two daughters, aged 6 and 16, were killed in a fire. Right away, the locals suspected there was more to this than just an accident. It was actually a triple murder. The motive, a hoard of gold that rumor had had been hidden somewhere in Hinkle's cabin. During the investigation, a young photographer told police the last thing a person sees before death leaves an image on their retinas. Well, photography was in its infancy at this point, so the idea wasn't so uncanny. So the photographer set up his gear and took photos of the dead woman's eyes. When the plates were processed... There was no image of the killer, and in fact, nobody is ever formally charged for the crime. Well, the young man was a Swiss immigrant by the name of Peter Britt, who had gone to become one of Oregon's two most celebrated citizens. He not only started the grape industry in the Rogue Valley, but he was also the first person to photograph what's now Crater Lake National Park. Today, the Britt Music Festival carries his name. Of course, interestingly enough, no cameras are allowed at the festival. Well, on that note, we're going to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow, and once again, we'll be talking about strange crimes and stupid criminals. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for The Ken Hudnall Show, saying have a truly great evening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?